CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello there, I'm George Frankly. It turns out even the best and brightest people can still make terrible decisions and stupid predictions. Let's see what we can learn from them. This is Dare to be Stupid. This time on Dare to be Stupid, how much skepticism is too much? Is there really such a thing? Let's fill out your skeptics toolkit. It's data, deltas, and doubts. I have a sugar problem. My relationship with the short chain carbohydrate is complicated. I want it, I want to be with it, but we're just not good together. Especially in the late afternoon when I have the worst sweet tooth imaginable. I know it's just going to make me tired and scatterbrained, but I crave a sugar fix after 2pm on work days. So for the longest time, I got into a routine of stopping by the office vending machine and grabbing an Otis Spunkmeyer chocolate chunk cookie. I love baked goods, and at only 9 grams of sugar, it's way lower than any other typical junk food. Honestly, the only downside to the Otis Spunkmeyer chocolate chunk cookie is the fact that a receipt line item reading Otis's Spunk Chunk was going to show up on my account every day. But I was still just as sugar crashed as ever by the time evening rolled around. And in a rare moment of post 6pm clarity, I eventually stopped and thought about that number. 9 grams of sugar. That's not just fantastically low, that's supernaturally low. You can't make any good junk food with only 9 grams of sugar. Ah, shit. It's 9 grams per serving, isn't it? If one of those cookies is actually two servings, well, I may have just played myself. I looked over the wrapper the next day. The good news is that I was wrong. The bad news is that there was no good news. One Otis Spunkmeyer chocolate chunk cookie was, according to the Lilliputian pastry engineers at Spunkmeyer HQ, four goddamned servings. If I had actually read the whole label instead of latching onto the numbers that I liked, I would have realized that I was wolfing down 36 grams of sugar in seconds every single day, somehow both ritualistically and unceremoniously. That cookie was coasting through life on the back of the fine print. One single cookie telling the tax collectors they have three dependents at home waiting. I can't show you a photograph of this cookie over audio, but allow me to paint you a picture with words. Picture, in your mind's eye, a cookie that sure as shit isn't big enough for four servings. And now you see it. I fell into an obvious set of traps. I made a compromised decision to trust malicious numbers at face value. And those numbers are malicious. The purpose of the strange serving number is to comply and to mislead. It shouldn't be this complicated, but a major part of doing business in this world is knowing when to trust and when to be a skeptic. And you really always need to be a skeptic. What does it take to maintain healthy skepticism without falling into outright cynicism? After talking at length about scams, fallacies, and statistical deceits so many times, 
I don't feel like I've ever been particularly constructive about it. This time, I'd like to look at useful frames of mind for separating healthy knowledge from the informational junk food. Whenever you're faced with new information or strange statistics, I want you to think about deltas, definitions, and disincentives. That's deltas, definitions, and disincentives. Let me show you what I mean. Delta, that plain triangle or sometimes a lowercase doodle like an upside-down Q, is one of the lucky Greek letters to have a permanent meaning in math and science. The delta is the difference, an expression of change. If the temperature of a reactor goes from 5 degrees to 50, that's a delta T of 45. If your velocity changes from 100 kph to 150 kph, that's a delta V, V for velocity, of 50. Delta is the change over a period of time. It sounds really stuffy when I lay it out like that, but we're actually bombarded with deltas every single day. Approval ratings are down 10%, interest rates are up 1%, sales have doubled, effects were felt 100 miles away, the project spans 10 years. We're hit with factoids like this constantly. These are all deltas, and they all share a common problem. Delta is the change from point A to point B over time T. And these are all missing that A, B, and T. The period of time matters. Approval down 10% after one year? That's pretty bad. Down 10% after one day? That's the fallout of a major national event. But what about point A and point B? Approval down 10% from 55 to 45% is a pretty major swing for the majority. Approval down 10% from 90 to 80%, well, things don't sound like they're in jeopardy there. Media loves to give us delta in a vacuum, change without context or meaning. It's an appeal to emotion and reaction instead of telling us the actual information, like your schoolteacher marking papers with a smiley or frowny face and forgetting to actually write a grade. It's only the feel of the information, the good or bad or up or down. What does it really mean when something is doubled or goes up 100%? An example I've discussed before is the frightening statistics for birth defects in women over 40. The rate doubles, as we are often told but rarely do they mention that it doubles from under half a percent to just under 1%. That is not the scale of risk change people are imagining when they hear doubled. Another problem with communicating change and difference is vectors, the direction of movement before and after the effects of change. Sometimes a change is much more complicated than number going up or down. If Bimmy and Jimmy live only two kilometers apart, how easy is it for them to visit each other? Two kilometers on level ground is a comfortable walk. Two kilometers for Bimmy up to Jimmy's mountaintop hideaway is an expedition. Two kilometers for Jimmy to reach Bimmy's subterranean lair is a multi-million dollar excavation project, and God help either of them if one of them lives two kilometers straight up. These are exaggerations, but the fact is that vague deltas leave it up to you, the listener, to assume what is or is not reasonable. And when they want you to feel a certain way, they'll prey on those assumptions. Knowing point A and point B is absolutely essential to understanding change. Don't assume anything. Even then, you may not have the entire picture. Imagine a rational risk-reward scenario. Jack and Jill are two investors in the same city with the same net worth. They're both worth $20 million with the same liquidity and distribution of assets. They're both presented with the same opportunity. Invest $5 million with a 66% chance of double your return. How do you assume they'll react to that risk? They both have 20 million on hand. They both have the chance to risk 5 million for a better than a coin flip chance at a reward. You know point A, and you know the odds for point B. You can assume they make the same choices. 
But if you knew the vectors going into those points, you'd change your assumptions. Both are starting at point A with $20 million, but off very different momentum. Jill had $15 million last month. Now she's bullish, confident, and unafraid of the risk. Jack had $80 million last month. He's fresh off a disaster, and he's loss-averse. Same starting point in terms of utility, but completely different vectors. And remember, we saw similar delta haggling last month with the Wall Street Journal's teardown of the NFT market. The headline data point was down 92%. It was down 92% from the insane heights of last September. And most of that plunge actually happened back in November. Sales were relatively steady from November to April. At the time of press, the NFT market was moving in a fairly mundane direction. Readers were offered a delta, but without context. When you hear that anything was up or down or moved or changed by X amount, you need to dig in deep. When you see a delta offered up, you need to think differences and you need to think destinations. Don't let someone sell you on how many miles are on their factsodometer. You need to know where it was and where it's going. Point A, point B, and time T. That is delta. After deltas, the next thing to watch out for are definitions. Definitions are something I got into a few weeks ago, but I want to give you a bit more to think about. At its simplest, definitions are usually what numbers are supposed to be measuring. When somebody tells you how much crime there is in an area, there's a difference between how many convictions are being recorded versus how many reports are being made. Either of those could theoretically measure crime. There's even more difference between numbers that are taken from records and numbers that are generated from surveys. Asking people on the street if crime is going up or down can give you a number, but that number won't tell you much. Definitions like this are essential to research and numbers. When a statistic mentions kids, make sure it defines those kids, what ages, and what kind of households. When a statistic mentions the elderly, find out what that means. Is that people over 60? Over 50? Maybe just 45? If any stats or graphs or headlines use a word that might have more than one literal meaning, you need to pick it apart until they define that meaning. That's all things I've covered before. But appropriately enough, the word definitions has more meanings than that. In fact, it's very important that we ask for definitions when it comes to the deadly chemical dihydrogen monoxide. Dihydrogen monoxide has been the subject of many different awareness campaigns over the years. You may have even heard one. It's an inorganic chemical used in hundreds of common industrial processes. It's colorless, odorless, can cause asphyxiation, and large amounts of it can be found in tumors and polyps. Today, it's so widespread that you can find it in all of our rivers and municipal water supplies, and even in our blood. You probably know already that this is an old story. Dihydrogen monoxide is a roundabout name for H2O. For decades, activists and comedians have played the same prank, carrying a clipboard and frightening folks on the street into signing a petition to ban the scary chemical dihydrogen monoxide. Water. They prey on people's emotions, their response to threatening language, and their own lack of defined opinions and boundaries. But put in their position, many of us might do the same. You know the prank, either by now or from the moment I said it, so you wouldn't fall for it. But what if I told you a similar scary story about, say, ascorbic acid? It's almost as corrosive as hydrochloric acid, overdosing on it can cause serious illness, and it's being unnecessarily added to thousands of food products. Ascorbic acid is, of course, vitamin C, and it's added to our food for that reason, and it actually takes a lot of it to overdose. But without your bullshit sensors already on edge from this discussion, ascorbic acid might have had a shot at your attention. Misinformation and attention-seeking outlets go for dramatic, frightening language, and fear of the unknown or unknowable can be very powerful. 
Couching nonsense arguments in complex or convoluted terms, delivering them quickly and overwhelming you, these are all methods to confuse and provoke. In an ideal world, then, nobody should ever fall for the dihydrogen monoxide trick for one simple reason. Either they know it, or they don't. Either they understand what's being defined, or they don't. The man with the clipboard isn't a science teacher or a solicited consultant. They're a stranger, and they're defining the terms for you. If you know enough about these words, you can immediately turn them down because you know they're wrong. If you don't know enough about those words, you can immediately turn them down because you know that you don't know. When it comes to definitions, this is something much more fundamental than being picky about words. It's knowing that it's okay to say, I don't know this. It's okay to walk away from something you cannot reliably define. Confronting new information isn't a binary choice of true or false. Signing a form or buying a product will say, I think this is true. But walking away doesn't mean, I think this is false. It can mean, I do not have the information to judge this. It can mean, I'll look into this more on my own time, at my own pace. Rapid influx of new information will drive you to make rapid decisions. And a rushed decision is a compromised decision. Take your time and know when to walk away. It's often better to make no decision than risk a stupid decision. Not being able to walk away from things we shouldn't have opinions on is how you get Twitter and Gallup polls. As George Carlin said, think of how stupid the average person is and realize half of them are stupider than that. I, uh, I think he meant median person. Average wouldn't actually work that way. I guess he should have chosen his words more carefully. After deltas and definitions, the final hazard is disincentives. Or maybe just incentives, but I'm going for an alliteration thing and you're not the boss of me. Just like definitions, when faced with a question of disincentives, you need to be able to say, I don't know. When any source is presenting you with new information or challenging you to form an opinion, you need to ask who they are and where their incentives or disincentives are coming from. There aren't always answers available, but many you can infer, and sometimes the lack of incentives is a clue in itself. At its simplest, the man on the street with a clipboard and a petition is no different from a salesman. They're all a Boolean interaction. They have a single right answer they're looking for. Sign, don't sign. Buy, don't buy. Their incentive is your positive engagement, and everything they do is skewed to that end. Whether their cause is righteous or their products are exactly what you need, any information they provide is slanted towards that goal. If there's only one positive result for the source of the information, that is their incentive. This expands far beyond the obvious salesman, the benevolent tipster cluing you in on an amazing opportunity. What's their incentive? Are they your friend? Are they a well-meaning consultant that made a career and brand out of providing this kind of advice? Or are they a content creator with zero background in finance? What are the incentives behind the data you're being given? Was data gathered from self-reported surveys? In that case, was it something the average person would be disincentivized from actually reporting, like unpopular or criminal behavior? Was data gathered from an accredited university, where misconduct would carry steep consequences, or from a study by a think tank or an activist group? Plenty of think tanks and committees are created and run by the same industries that stand to benefit from them. You shouldn't be surprised to find out that the Pepsi Challenge was administered by Pepsi. It isn't just their incentives, it's our own, too. The bastard Otis Spunkmeyer had plenty of reason to label his chocolate chip diabetes grenades in misleading ways, but the fact is that I had plenty of incentive to accept those numbers. And I did accept them. It was data presented in precisely the way I wanted to see it, supporting and validating my own desires. 
My own incentives may be prone to confirmation bias, and I immediately trusted something because it told me it was perfectly okay to gnash that junk food down like a feral hog. I think we've covered the basics of data and doubt. Delta, definitions, and disincentives. In the world of data doubts, there's Donnie do's and Donnie don'ts, and definitely don't do what Donnie don't does. I'm, uh, I'm sorry I put you through that. But now, we can look at how these points combine to warn us about complex and real-world events. We've already looked at how the Wall Street Journal played with deltas to dramatize the state of NFT sales. We can also see how they cherry-picked definitions, focusing on number of transactions rather than the values of transactions. You might even have the urge to judge their disincentives just by the fact that I'm still talking about their headline today. Their inflammatory numbers drove massive engagement and was the linked source for dozens of derivative articles and commentaries. Just remember that working backwards, retroactively speculating the incentive and motive based on the end results, can drive you easily into fallacious arguments and circular reasoning. Driving engagement is a common incentive for most social media platforms, but doing it for the clicks isn't a magic bullet you can fire at every website you disagree with. Another fascinating real-world event was a recent, complex crypto scam that nearly slipped under the radar thanks to just how poorly it actually went. In May, a lengthy TED Talk video made the rounds in which Elon Musk discussed his own crypto trading platform, Bitvex. He goes on at length about his desires to enter the crypto market and make it more accessible and drive adoption. He even boasts that investors in his platform can reliably make 30% monthly returns on their investments. The immediate problem was that Musk's unnaturally robotic voice and wobbling mouth movements gave away the core deceit. It was a basic deepfake. Few people bought it. In fact, it's wonderful just how poorly the Bitvex scam went, raking in only a few thousand dollars across multiple wallets. But even if we try to ignore the uncanny valley giveaways, smudge up the camera lens, just read the subtitles, we can use these tools of doubt to ask valuable questions. The Delta immediately sets off red flags. 30% returns on seemingly any basis, well, that's a number as uncanny as the rest of the video. That kind of ROI is absurd, and there's no explanation offered as to how his magical trading site could not just beat, but triple the S&P 500 on a reliable basis. The definitions are murky. Even if we assume there was some proprietary system at work that was always one step ahead of the market, there's a total failure to define what Bitvex supposedly does, only that, quote, Tesla's best mathematicians, unquote, were on the job. Neither Musk nor Tesla employees have been inherently portrayed as investment gurus, so this definition has no credibility. The disincentives were actually almost handled well. If Musk's stated goal was just to encourage crypto use and adoption, making it profitable for the masses would seem to incentivize them. But that's a philanthropic pipe dream. His supposed website is just asking people to deposit crypto they've already bought elsewhere into Bitvex and just watch it grow. That isn't doing anything to improve accessibility or adoption. It actually clashes with Robo-Musk's stated motives and is only offering the audience easy money. His stated incentives and the site's incentives are blatantly mismatched, and that should set off alarms. Everything about deepfake Musk was wrong, and it was refreshing to see such an elaborate-looking scam go so poorly. But not everything that feels wrong is a scam. Sometimes things are just not enough to trust. The last case study I want to look at is one that will go on developing and go on requiring skepticism. That is Tether, the premier US dollar stablecoin. Tether is very well known. Unlike the flaky history of algorithmic stablecoins, Tether banks on the sturdiness of collateralized direct dollar backing. Every Tether minted reflects a fungible, real dollar invested and available. But there's been questions about that explanation. 
Tether makes many claims about its structure and its assets, and we'd be foolish not to question them, especially in a market that has been brutal towards stablecoins and their intermediaries as of late. Tether built its brand on one-to-one dollar backing, with the goal of always having USD ready to cash out for Tether holders. Years of poor transparency and a lack of direct audits have led to many things we should question. Tether's obvious delta should lie in its equivalence. Essentially, there should be zero change between the Tether market cap and their available assets, one-to-one backing. But instead, they've introduced a number of different resources that stand to gain or diminish in value compared to the US dollar. Essentially, there is a delta where there ideally should not be, and they've never fully disclosed the details of those assets. Worse still, they've acknowledged a change occurred in the distribution of their assets, but there's no clear point A or point B surrounding those changes. When did these assets change, and how well were they accounted for? When do any of these enormous changes fit on the company timeline, and what outside events are connected to them? Those disclosures are closely tied to Tether's visible disincentives. It's bad enough that there are no transparent audits, but the quarterly assurance statements that Tether releases are not voluntary. They are the result of a settlement with the New York Attorney General, in which Tether was accused of hiding major asset losses and admitted no wrongdoing. The settlement required them to make quarterly statements for transparency, which are produced by their Cayman Island accountants. The fact is that Tether has avoided transparency whenever possible, and could not be incentivized to release these numbers, only forced. Even then, the reports are often delayed and always vague. Moreover, Tether spent its early life declaring its independence from major crypto entities and denying reports of ties to the crypto exchange Bitfinex. Tether's ownership by Bitfinex was never acknowledged until the evidence was too overwhelming for them to ignore. Tether's most logical incentives should be, at bare minimum, to maintain token stability and customer trust, yet they avoid the kind of measures that would support those incentives, and instead they engage in practices that align elsewhere. The Tether situation has created a scenario in which we can rarely prove anything is conclusively wrong, yet every aspect still creates doubt. And again, when faced with overwhelming doubt, we can feel compelled to pick a side. But it's always an option to just walk away. You don't owe it to yourself to be a data analyst or a statistician, at least not if that isn't your job. You don't need to be able to say if a business or a fact or a number is good or bad. Just draw the line at not good enough. In the end, that's all being skeptical needs to be. Not a naysayer, not the man who sees lies everywhere. Just a person who can walk away from things that aren't good enough. You aren't obligated to seek out the ultimate truth at every turn, much less have an opinion about every fact that's presented to you. Exercise the freedom and the restraint to leave doubtful things alone. If they turn out to be true, well, then they should still be true the day you come back around. Or maybe you have the self-control to take things just one serving at a time. For me, that's just not how the cookie crumbles. Thanks for listening. As always, my various job titles usually include the word armchair. If you're an expert and I'm getting it wrong, I'd like to hear about it. <laughs>